Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, evidence-informed, practical-based. This is season two, episode number eight, and today we're talking ketone supplements and implications for endurance performance and health with Dr. Brianna Stubbs. In this episode, Brianna kicks things off by talking about the differences between endogenous and exogenous ketosis, how ketogenesis played a fundamental role throughout evolution, and the potential anti-inflammatory and antioxidant effects of supplemental ketones. She then dives into her research on the effects of ketone supplementation and endurance performance its impact on blood glucose and lactic acid levels, the ketone-sparing glycogen effect during exercise, and its impact on intramuscular triglyceride use. She also discusses her work on supplemental ketones and satiety, and whether or not this means a potential benefit for weight management. She also discusses the evolution of ketone supplement research and a lot more. So fantastic insights here from Brianna. Uh, Terrific research as well as practical applications from an athlete herself. If you're interested in more info on ketogenic diets, then make sure you circle back to season one, episode number 33 with Mr. Ryan Lowry. And on the endurance training side of things, the interview with Dr. Daniel Plews and Prof. Larson is episode number 27 of season one. Of course, don't forget to check out drbubs.com forward slash podcast for all the links and research papers we discuss in this episode, as well as my layups, those simple actual tips. All right, before we get started, a quick word from this episode's sponsor, Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. No sugar, no artificial flavors, absolutely nothing added. What is it? Totem Sport is the world's purest deep ocean mineral water. Collected from natural algae blooms in the Atlantic Ocean, Totem Sport is the only sports drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. Totem Sport is highly bioavailable and has been shown in research to enhance stamina, by stabilizing blood glucose levels during exercise, as well as strengthening immunity by buffering exercise-induced reductions in key immune markers. The research on deep ocean mineral water is ramping up, a recent study highlighting its major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sports drinks. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% natural sport drink, tested and approved by informed sport and informed choice. Check out totemsport.co.uk and defy the norm. All right, let's get things rolling. Season two, episode number eight on exogenous ketone supplements and endurance training with Dr. Brianna Stubbs. Enjoy the show. I'm joined today by Dr. Brianna Stubbs, PhD, a British rower and research scientist who won two gold medals for Great Britain at the 2013 and 2016 World Rowing Championships. She was the youngest person to row across the English Channel when she completed the feat in 2004 at the age of 12. And today her research is focused on ketone metabolism in athletes, the effects of different ketone supplements on human physiology, and the effects of ketone drinks on appetite. Brianna, thanks so much for taking the time today. No problems at all. Thank you very much for having me, Mark. Terrific. Well, perhaps we can start, Brianna, with maybe talking a little bit more about your impressive career in rowing and how that dovetailed into academia and research. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, as you mentioned, uh, my first kind of like foray into into adventure, sport and rowing was age 12. So my uh, dad, he took part in the 
part in the first ever ocean rowing race in 1997. So I was growing up in this household where um, doing kind of crazy extreme things and, and being physically active, it was just sort of uh, very, very much a part of my life. And so um, I started rowing when I was uh, 10 or 11. But before that, I had sort of done um, some triathlons and some running and some cycling. I did my first ever running race age seven, I think. And nice. I remember... Um, I remember I was competing in the eight to nine year old category because I didn't have anything younger than age eight. And I remember competing against at that age, you know, that one more year makes quite a big difference in how big you are. And so I was lining up against these like girls who had legs up to my ears. And <laughs> I remember um, it was a one mile long race. And I remember running so hard that I was sick at the end. But I came third and the trophy was as tall as my head. It was this huge trophy of this teeny weeny little seven year old. But That's that fantastic. kind of set the scene for yeah, it kind of set the scene for where I was gonna gonna kind of go grow grow onto. I guess. I mean, I um, took up rowing, and then um, as I was progressing through the sport, um, I had to specialise more and more. So I did fewer and fewer other sports, and um, I represented Great Britain for the first time, aged sixteen, uh, and then again at the Junior World Championships, aged eighteen. I went through the under twenty three team where I won the world championships and then into the senior team where I won a silver and a gold medal at the world championships and was in contention for qualifying for the Olympics. So, I mean, it was um, it was quite a progression. Uh, quite when I look back, it was uh, you know I'm very proud of everything that I achieved and it really did allow me to, um, uh, especially towards the end, um, rowing catalyzed me being able to stay in uh, academia because at the time I had been when I decided to start rowing for the British senior team I was studying preclinical medicine so I was going to be an MD um, but because partly because the rowing was going very well and partly because I stumbled into this research group doing exogenous ketones and was fascinated I managed to put my medical training on hold and focus in on researching and uh rowing and the two kind of well, it was very difficult to combine the two but it was much more flexible than perhaps uh, being in a hospital would have been so I was very lucky that I had the two things that I was sort of uh, super passionate about just about fitted together it was challenging um, but very very rewarding so I mean I, I guess I could rewind it a little bit and say um, I was at Oxford University and I was rowing for the university rowing team against Cambridge and so um, I was and also trialing for the national team uh, the under 23 national team and I saw this advert for uh, a research study and they were like we would need elite rowers to come and we're testing out this new energy drink and you have to do a 30 minute long time trial on the rowing machine and that was a training session that we would do almost every week anyway it was something that the national team required us to send in so I had a really good feel for, for that test and what yeah so I knew I was like well you know why, why not go and get paid to do this this <laughs> seems sure. like a great idea um, and so I went up and I met the um, the leader of that study who was Dr. Pete Cox who was the first author on a big paper that was published just uh, two years ago and he was really um, spearheading a lot of the ketones and exercise um, work and so I remember taking this drink and it was this kind of like in a protein shaker chocolate flavored quite thick and I was like well it's not kind of like not the kind of thing <laughs> I'd normally be normally be taking before I go For and sort sure. of work out to the max but I um, And then it was placebo controlled as well. So I was never sure which one I was taking. But it turned out that when I took the ketone drink, I did a season's best. And so um, I was just really, really, really fascinated. And speaking to 
Pete Cox more about the metabolism just got me really, really fired up to find out more about it. And so it turned out that at medical school, you have to do a research project. So I was like, oh, well, I'll get back in touch with them, see if I can work in the heat. Exactly. Um, And so really went from there. I went from being a master's student. um, I worked for them as a research assistant in the lab, just doing kind of bloods analysis and mopping sweat off people's brows as they were doing the (laughs) the cycling exercise tests. And then and then into doing my Ph.D. with um, Dr. Pete Cox and Professor Kieran Clark. Um, Kieran Clark was one of the co-inventors of the keto nester. So I was really uh, working with pioneers in, in the field of exogenous ketones and sort of had an opportunity to contribute some re- some research to that field myself. So it's been a fantastic journey, um, not necessarily what I'd have predicted um, age 16. You know, I guess I never thought that I was going to be good enough at rowing to row on the senior team because I wasn't very big and rowers are normally tall and strong. And so it actually ended up that I was a lightweight rower um, and found the fit there. But then again, you know, I was planning to go to medical school and be a doctor. And now I am a ketone researcher and, you know, pushing forward the fields of ketone supplementation in a company based in San Francisco. So it's it's been quite a journey and not at all what I'd have expected, but I'm, I'm enjoying the ride so far. There you go. It's amazing how things sort of work, their, work themselves out for for us, right? Yeah, you can, even the best laid plans, they never really um, map out exactly how you were expecting them to. Awesome. Well, before we jump into talking all about your research and the ketone supplementation and endurance performance and maybe dovetailing into satiety as well, could you maybe outline for listeners the difference between endogenous ketosis and exogenous ketosis with supplementation? Sure. I mean, that's a really, really important distinction to make, and a lot of people get very confused. Um, So endogenous ketosis means that your body is producing ketones. And in order to trigger endogenous ketosis, you need to follow uh, either follow a ketogenic diet so that's a diet that is very very low in carbohydrates typically at least under 50 grams a day more often nearer under 20 grams of carbohydrate per day Uh, the diet also has to be kind of moderate in protein it can't be too high in protein because protein can be used to make glucose in this inside the body by a process called gluconeogenesis Uh, And the diet has to be very high in fat. So typically about 80% of your energy is coming from fat. So, you know, you're typically dressing everything with um, oils and spreading lots of butter on everything, eating um, fatty cuts of meat, uh, heavy cream, things like that. So it's um, it's can be quite difficult to adhere to and certainly difficult to adhere to strictly enough to uh, trigger the body to produce ketones and so if you're not following the diet another way that you can trigger endogenous ketosis is by fasting and so again this depends on on the individual but um, it can take several days of fasting in order to trigger endogenous ketosis and what's required there is for the body's carbohydrate reserves to become completely run out so liver glycogen needs to be depleted so that blood glucose levels fall um, and this triggers the need for ketone production so um, that's what's going on with endogenous ketosis, that the point of endogenous ketosis is when you are either following a low carb diet or fasting, your blood sugar falls and blood sugar is really essential for brain function. Um, the only other thing that the brain can use other than glucose, blood sugar, is ketones. The body brain can't use fats as a fuel because they can't cross the blood brain barrier. And so we actually have like many, many more thousands of calories stored as fat than we do as glucose. And so if we're not eating glucose in the diet um, or if we're fasting, that runs out within sort of 24 to 48 hours. And so you have this problem where the brain will run out of, of energy unless you make an energy source the brain can use. So the body turns fat 
into ketones through endogenous ketosis and then the ketones can be used mainly for the brain but actually very uh, all of the tissues in the body apart from the liver are able to use ketones so they're um, not just for the brain but evolutionarily their primary function is for the brain so that that's a summary of endogenous ketosis and what's different with exogenous ketosis is that you have ketones in your blood, but they haven't come from the fat stores in your body. So, I mean, if we take a very, very high level approach of defining ketosis itself as anything where your blood ketone levels are over 0.5, that seems to be like the widely accepted value for for being in ketosis. Um, You, with exogenous ketosis, you uh, consume ketones in a drink either ketones themselves or things that can quite easily be broken down into ketones like medium chain fats. Um, And then so you raise the ketone levels in your blood, but that hasn't come through carbohydrate restriction or fasting. It's um, the ketones are kind of synthetic, if if you will. For sure. And I think that uh, dovetails perfectly into you know, the terrific, uh, what was it, five-part study that you guys did using ketone, ester supplementation, and endurance performance. Now, I know this is a really big thing to unpack, but can you give folks some highlights, uh, you know, from that study as it relates to, to endurance performance? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, probably, I mean, the best place to start is the beginning. So, I mean, what what we did to start with was look at if the body was using ketones during exercise. So, um, we gave a ketone drink at uh, watched people's blood ketone levels at rest and then made them exercise at two intensities. And so what we saw was when you start to exercise, blood ketone levels are relatively lower than when you sit and have the same ketone drink at rest. And also, as you increase the intensity of exercise, the levels go down a little more. So it kind of strongly suggestive that uh, ketones are being used as a fuel for exercise. We estimated that um, in this state, ketones are accounting for between 16 to 18 percent of the body's energy requirements and so I guess one really important point to flag up early on is that all of the athletes that we studied were not athletes following a ketogenic diet so they were not um, in endogenous ketosis and that's what's really cool about exogenous ketones you can have ketones and carbohydrates available to the body at the same time so the body has all of the fuel sources that it's able to use during exercise ketones carbs and fats so um, that's why that's why we believe we're seeing performance uh, improvement, which we can kind of talk about a little more later on. So, I mean, um, then we, we were kind of looking to characterize the state of exogenous ketosis and how it affects the body during exercise. And so, I mean, some of the highlights there is that we saw that taking exogenous ketones, even even with exercise, lowers blood glucose. Uh, another thing it lowers is lactic acid levels during during matched amounts of exercise. And it's quite a significant drop in lactic acid. It's anywhere between two to four millimolar less lactic acid. Um, so, I mean, that was something that I remember experiencing when I took the drink. I mean, I um, was very, like, very big lactic acid producer, especially compared to some of my other fellow athletes on the team. And um, so you can really feel when your levels are, are lower. It's sort of, um, it's very... Uh, it's something that really makes it very real. You can definitely tell that it's affecting you because uh, because your lactic acid is lower. Uh, then we sort of we were moved on. We were looking at different muscle biopsy samples, trying to understand what whether the ketone was getting into the muscle and what it was doing to pathways of glycolysis, what it was doing to fatty acid oxidation, and that biopsy work also revealed that ketones were sparing glycogen use during exercise. So that meant that whilst ketones were present you were not needing to burn as much glycogen to do the same amount of work. 
And another interesting finding that we uh, never really yet explained is that it looks like when you take a ketone drink, uh, you burn more of the fat that's stored inside the muscle. So athletes tend to have um, lots of lipid droplets inside their muscle and they're able to use that for energy. And we saw that when we add keto added ketones in, the size of the muscle fat droplets dropped, were decreased a lot more than uh, if you were exercising with just carbohydrates in the pre-exercise drink. So that was interesting. We still haven't really worked out the mechanism for that at all. Um, so all of this like mechanistic work was building up to a performance study. And what we did then was people cycled for an hour at a fixed intensity. It was 75% of uh, work max. And then after they'd done, which is quite intense, it's an intense. Um, for inten sure. It's an, it's an, yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not no, just it's a, not a walk cable. in the park, right? No, for sure. They finished this. And I mean, I think at the end of the pre-fatigue, their lactic acid, I'm just trying to see if I can see it here. Yeah, their lactic acid is like six millimoles. So it's, you know, it's a pretty intense kind of effort. Then they do the 30 minute time trial. Uh, at the end of that, people's lactic lactates were between 10 and 14. So it's pretty maximal for most, for most people. And we saw ultimately there an improvement in performance. It was 400 meters over 30 minutes. So just over 2%, 2.3%. And um, I mean, to put that in context, that would be 400 meters would be easily the difference between first and eighth place in the Olympic road race. So it's in uh, sure. elite sport, that kind of margin is like pretty impactful. So yeah, that's, that's the, uh, the big one, the big cell metabolism paper. And that was, you know, many, many years of work. And there's still some stuff that we were working on in Oxford that's yet to be published that will kind of, kind of uh, add to and complement that picture. But that's what's out there at the moment. And we've had a lot of interest in that work. Certainly enjoyed answering people's questions about it. And, and with that work, is it, um, you know, in terms of, you know, specific to endurance athletes, is it kind of the longer duration bouts of exercise? Like we're talking marathons or even things like ultra marathons or Ironman events where this could be most applicable? Well, I mean, I suppose the first thing to say is that, like, we tested it in this very um, specific uh, set of conditions so I mean the only thing I can say with 110% certainty is that with 90 minutes of cycling <clears throat> you've got an improved performance at the end of you know fairly endurance like uh, cycling but we understand the metabolism from this work and so we can make very very informed um, suggestions about where there's going to be the most benefit so my my um, current position is that the longer the event, the more benefit you're going to see because gotcha. of this glycogen sparing, because of the glycogen sparing effect. And so, you know, ketones are burnt inside the mitochondria. They're an aerobic fuel source. So I do not expect there to be the same performance benefit in terms of uh, absolute output in uh, anaerobic sports. Uh, mixed intensity sports are very, very interesting to me because there's, you know, intermittent uh bursts of activity where ketones aren't likely to necessarily help but then you know in, in between each of the sprints you've got this more aerobic uh, component to the exercise where you need to recover and also in mixed intensity sports more often than not they're team sports where uh, being cognitively sharp and making decisions is important and that's certainly something that we've seen in our early data is it affected by ketones so before we moved into humans we did some studies on animals that uh, looked at mice solving a maze and we saw that they were um, able to solve a maze 38% faster having had ketones compared with uh, just normal western diet so that was a good indicator but then uh, in some of the studies we were running at Oxford we were looking at um, decision making and cognitive tasks and we saw some areas where ketones were certainly offering an improvement and 
that this is being validated um, by some other collaborators that we we've, we've been speaking to. So I think um, for mixed intensity game sports, maybe you're not going to be able to sprint any faster, but I think your endurance over the whole game will be better and potentially you'll be in a better place to make decisions. So, I mean, um, at the moment, it's educated guesswork. You know, maybe I'm doing myself a disservice. We understand it quite well and we can we can very strongly say what we think is going to happen but someone needs to go out and run the study and also you know obviously get it out into the hands of athletes and people can feed back how they're finding it works for them but certainly um multi-day cycle races like pro tour cycling and uh, ironman and marathon i'm really really excited to um to see whether someone can break the two-hour marathon using ketones i mean they got so close last summer two hours 24 seconds if you've got something that's absolutely two percent two percent better then you know fingers crossed we could we could see that that milestone fall well it's interesting with the team sports as well obviously like basketball soccer rugby these you know mixed intensities like you mentioned in terms of the the technical and tactical aspects that you know start to wane as these events go on for that 60 to 90 to Mm. two hours or into extra time um so i think that's really interesting to see um what could come of that and of course it sounds like you know for sprint and power-based athletes the, the the applications might be a little bit more limited obviously right well, I mean, so I think in terms of improving performance, then yes, because I mean, if you're a power lifter, you're very heavily relying on your phosphocreatine energy system. So I don't think that ketones are necessarily going to help that. And then, you know, if you're doing a 100 meter sprint, it's anaerobic glycolysis. And so you really need to be burning carbohydrates to, to do that work. Ketones are being burned in the mitochondria, like I said. But in order to do those performances, you need to stack up you know, a good bank of training day after day after day. And you have, um, I think actually that's where ketones will be really, really helpful for these athletes. Um, Because what we've seen is uh, when you give ketones post-exercise, they accelerate glycogen resynthesis and also promote protein synthesis. Um, and we've actually seen it as well. If you take it before before exercise, it decreases the amount of muscle protein that you break down during exercise. So, I mean, there's all these kind of like smoking guns where it's like, hmm, this could be really interesting from a recovery and a body composition type of perspective. Not only that, but this is this we haven't measured in humans, uh, I don't think, but it's very, very pretty well accepted in the literature about ketones being anti-inflammatory and antioxidants and so they're activating various components of the innate immune system um sorry inhibiting various components of the innate immune system and decreasing inflammation and so actually we've had some uh, professional cyclists using our ketone ester as we've been developing it out of oxford and now here in america um and their feedback is that actually if they take it after a really, really hard day that they recover way better, they feel much more energized and ready to go again the next day. So I think, you know, even if these athletes uh, sprint or power athletes may not see a benefit to that in terms of their performance, in terms of maintaining uh, quality training during a uh, intense training block, blocks I think, and stuff, yeah. Yeah. I really think that where we're going to, you know, we're at the very start of our understanding of exogenous ketones and how they work for athletic performance. You know, there's going to be some uh, sports that they work excellently for for performance and there's going to be some sports where the effect is much less striking. But then also, you know, the recovery aspects and the uh, cognitive aspects and how that all plays into sport. These are questions where uh, we have hypotheses, but we really only need to get out there and test them and, you know, uh, I think 
now with uh, the keto nesta being commercially available we're probably going to be getting feedback from athletes before we even are able to run the science studies because you know that's gonna gonna just like go on a pace and science is very very slow but hopefully feedback from athletes will give us some good guidance on how best to to design the research so that we can confirm our hypotheses yeah it's exciting stuff and it i mean that's you touched on a little bit there, but it dovetails into my next question around kind of timing and dosage of, of ketone supplementation. I mean, it sounds like it would um, depend on the sport, whether you're an endurance-based sport or a mixed sport and looking for the recovery benefits. But can you give some some maybe overarching recommendations around uh, how people could use that? Yeah, I mean, so I think the first thing to point out is that there are different types of exogenous ketones that people can use at the moment. So um, I've been working on a ketone ester. Uh, it's a beta-hydroxybutyrate monoester. And that's important because different ketone esters are kind of like different types of ketones glued together. So, for example, you may have heard of Professor Dominic D'Agostino, and he works on a ketone ester that is made up of acetoacetate. It's yep. an acetoacetate diester. So they're very different compounds, and they're going to be used in the body in different ways. They're not, they're not the same, not equivalent. Excuse me. Um, the, the other type of compound that's out there is a ketone salt. Um, and so those uh, there's several companies that market these. They are um, generally less effective at raising blood ketone levels. So um, I studied them as part of my PhD. And now in the last six months, um, six to nine months, there's been three or four research papers that have come out looking at ketone salts and sport. And one of the most striking things is that the blood ketone levels are around about 10 to 12 times lower than with a ketone ester. So after a ketone salt, your blood ketones rise from zero effectively up to 0.6 to 0.8 millimolar as well as with the ketone ester blood ketone levels are over three between three to five millimolar so it's very much higher uh, with the ketone ester than the ketone salt and i think that that's probably got some implications for for the effect on performance so and they stay elevated like, for quite a while don't they as well sorry to jump in there yeah for, for, for several hours so one one drink will raise your blood ketones uh, one drink that's containing say 25 grams of ketone ester will raise your blood ketones over three for probably three hours three to six hours depending on whether you exercise or whether you are at rest so um yeah so first off you pick your type of exogenous ketone whether you're able to use ketone esters or whether you're using ketone salts and then if you're looking for a performance benefit before an endurance sport then the recommended way to use that would be alongside your gold standard carbohydrates so if you normally take um like an energy gel or have um like oatmeal or a banana or something like that before you work out you should take ketones along with that because we believe it's the stacking of the two together that's really really important for endurance performance it's not like um we saw we actually did one study where we gave ketones by themselves and you see that performance is kind of the same so really it's giving the two together that's giving your body all of the choices of fuels optimal carbohydrates optimal ketones and that's what's really going to unlock a greater endurance performance so for in, for endurance athletes take we, we're um, i'm working with a company at the moment called human it's spelled hvmn and I, I took a role on as a research lead there so that i could kind of steward the ketone project as it sort of rolls out to the world and so the um the product that they're offering has got 25 grams of ketone ester in it and so standardized serving sizes whereas in the research studies we um would body weight adjust the amount so some people may need to bigger people may need to take more than one serving and smaller people could could get away with taking less but uh that that aside 20 125 gram bottle 
about 30 minutes before you exercise to give yourself time for for it to go down basically you could take it nearer if you if you uh don't mind taking taking a shot of something just before you go and work out but especially as an athlete you've often got like warm-up procedures and things that you want to do so any supplementation it's always just like a little bit before the start line so yeah ketones and carbs about 30 minutes before you go out and do your workout or do your race that's how i would use it for performance um in terms of recovery um again it's it's very similar to build on to like your existing post-workout nutrition so you know gold standard at the moment is within half an hour getting in protein and carbs in order to re refuel and uh, sustain your your recovery and so we the gold standard at the moment the the our understanding of how ketones fit into that is just adding them in on top so it's an additive effect on top of your normal uh, regime rather than replacing anything that you already use with ketones good stuff and any interactions that endurance athletes or even uh, mixed sport athletes for that matter in terms of things like caffeine or or dietary nitrates that would uh, any interactions there with that and ketones not as far as we've seen. I mean, a lot of this, this, you know, my, my knowledge on this comes from other athletes and myself having used it in the field, um, not from the research study. So we've never studied it with caffeine formally. Um, I know that some of the salt manufacturers, ketone salt manufacturers put caffeine in their products to make it feel like something happens. So, you know, it's certainly no um, ill effects that we've seen. I'd be pretty confident that adding caffeine to ketones and carbohydrates would be like dynamite. I'm pretty sure that would be, that would be what I would think <laughs> if I was going to go out and use it. I would probably sure. like nitrate load, yeah. then take my ketones and my caffeine. I'm actually training for a half Ironman in March. So I'm really hoping that I'll be able to get myself some ketone ester to use for, for that race. Terrific. Um, yeah. And- before we shift gears to talk satiety, I just wanted to, uh, last question for you on the performance front. If someone's really performance oriented or we're talking again, elite athletes, um, you know, with you know, Louis Burke's group in Australia and, and, and yeah. show, showing some limitations on that real top end, um, you know, speed and performance, is, is this, uh, you know, a p- potential added benefit of using these exogenous ketones versus the athletes that are typically just, um, you know, shifting their dietary intake and, and getting into nutritional ketosis? So, yeah, so I think um, Louise Burke's study is really interesting um, and it's sort of, I guess, additive onto what, what we did at Oxford. Um, as I mentioned earlier on, they use a different uh, ketone ester compound. So they use the acetoacetate diester compound um, and that ha- that compound itself hasn't really been um, fully studied in humans before they did that study like um people from the lab that dom d'agostino's lab had taken it but there were no um formal pharmacokinetic studies or so people people weren't sure necessarily how best to use it to raise blood ketones um so actually if you look at their data they didn't really manage to raise blood ketone levels all that high at all it was i think it was about one 1.2 millimolar so really not all that much better in terms of beta hydroxybutyrate as a salt and i mean that makes perfect sense because you're giving a lot of acetoacetate so it makes sense that beta hydroxybutyrate wouldn't be elevated in that study and so they also they used a i think it was about 10 kilometer time trial or i can't remember if it was 10 kilometers or if it was a fixed workload um i think the no, it's not more than it's more than ten kilometers. It what? took about forty minutes, I believe. Yep. I'm trying to remember the distance. Uh, it took about it took about forty minutes. But they, um, you know, firstly, I'd say that that would probably be a little short. Like I'd expect to see more benefits as the event goes out longer. But um, the the thing is, if you give acetoacetate, it actually 
impairs energy or could be said to impair energy production inside the muscle. So um, acetoacetate and beta-hydroxybutyrate get converted into one another inside the mitochondria. Um, and that reaction is dependent on NAD and NADH. And so what we inside the mitochondria, the aim of the game is to produce NADH from the Krebs cycle and other metabolic processes, because the NADH is what's used for generating a proton gradient, which is what's used for generating ATP. Um, so if you give beta-hydroxybutyrate, it converts into acetoacetate and that produces NADH. However, if you give acetoacetate, some of it is going to be, because it's an equilibrium reaction between the two, some of it is going to go back to beta-hydroxybutyrate, even though beta-hydroxybutyrate has to go to acetoacetate to be metabolized. There's going to be some backward shunt of acetoacetate into beta-hydroxybutyrate, and that actually uses up NADH, produces NAD, and so that's um, not helping, let's just say, with mitochondrial energy production, as far as we understand. And it's yep. kind of um, backed up by some early work done by people when uh, they were looking at isolated rodent hearts. So they would give the hearts beta-hydroxybutyrate um, or acetoacetate, and the hearts where they were only given acetoacetate would fail um, a lot earlier than the hearts having beta-hydroxybutyrate. So I think um, I'm not entirely surprised that they didn't see an increase in performance. I mean, firstly, the compound is very different. Secondly, if, we, if we're looking at beta-hydroxybutyrate as an important thing to try and elevate, that was not particularly high in that study. Secondly, um, thirdly, um, giving acetoacetate may not be optimal for endurance performance or muscle performance just because of the reason, the technical reasons that we've just discussed. And then, I mean, I'm surprised I only just got to this now. For me, the biggest limitation of that study was how sick people felt. If you look at the results, I think it was one person had to withdraw because he was so sick and all of the riders reported some kind of um, GI upset, nausea or vomiting or something like that. And to me, that completely confounds the results of a performance trial. Like you can't, you can't say whether it's the intervention, the ketones that's made people better or worse if everyone feels sick. That's, that's a massive deal. I mean, I know from my own experience, running, cycling, whatever, if you don't feel great, you're not going to perform as well. So I think... Um, Especially GI-wise, is definitely one of those ones yeah, that's very limiting for sure. For so sure. I think, yeah, so I think like that paper is a really, really useful com uh, contribution to the field and it kind of highlights some things that still need to be answered, like what happen what happens if an acetoacetate supplement is tolerable and, you know, is acetoacetate equivalent to beta-hydroxybutyrate in terms of performance, um, if you can elevate both the same in a tolerable kind of way. Um, I think that would be like the main question that I think needs answering. But in order to do that, they need to make the acetoacetate ester palatable. Um, so, I mean, yeah, top end performance. I, I'm pretty convinced that there's no negative effect at all of adding in ketones to an event where it's over an hour, an hour and a half. I think that's kind of like the sweet spot for it. There's going to be no inhibition of that top end, like sprinting. And I think you're going to get a benefit from the glycogen sparing and ketone metabolism. So I think for anything really over an hour, there's going to be net benefit of adding ketones in. Um, it wasn't necessarily borne out by that study, mainly because of the reasons we've just discussed. But I think um, it's, a, it's a young field. More stuff needs to be done and we need people to independently um, validate the results from Oxford as well. And I know that there are some researchers, um, Brendan Egan in Ireland, and he's working in the field of exogenous ketones. I'm sure he'll be looking to run his own independent studies soon to, to validate what we saw. 
Absolutely. And it seems, as you mentioned, it seems exciting that you can just add this on top of a, an already mixed diet and get, and get some of these benefits, which makes it uh, really uh, yeah. handy. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly an interesting question whether people on a ketogenic diet, what benefit would they see? Because, I mean, to me, my current like position is that you'd expect that they would um, see a benefit, but because, because they're adapted to metabolize ketones, but because our current understanding is that if you follow a ketogenic diet, your top end sprinting, your like uh, anaerobic capacity is um, decreased a little because you adapt to burning fat rather than carbohydrates, that um, athlete on a mixed diet with the addition of ketones is probably still going to be the keto adapted athlete adding in ketones because they the mixed diet athlete has got more uh, different fuel sources sort of available the best of both worlds right exactly 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 and now if we shift gears to ketone supplements and fat loss and of course you know the ketogenic diet has been growing in popularity for the last decade but I think the last couple of years has definitely exploded um, and a common misconception I hear people always mentioning is that you know if they're in ketosis they're a fat burning machine can, can you give listeners a little bit more clarity here on some of these definitions yeah I mean I think part of the problem is that there's no consensus yet so I um myself and the research group that we worked with and it seems like maybe the research community more broadly defines ketosis as the state of having ketones in your blood and it's as simple as that it's like if i prick your finger and you you have over 0.5 millimolar of bhb you are in ketosis and then it becomes important to caveat it with like exogenous or endogenous you know like where did those ketones come from that's one step you know next step along as whereas people in the keto diet community tend to as you just said take ketosis as meaning uh, what i would call ketogenic so i would say if you are producing ketones you are a fat burning machine and you're ketogenic and that's resulting in ketosis as whereas um if you take a ketone drink i would say you are definitely in ketosis you have ketones in your blood and probably higher ketones in levels of ketones in your blood than if you're on the ketogenic diet. But as you say, there's definitely like people who get angry or upset because they say it's not real ketosis. Well, it is real ketosis. It's just not come from being ketogenic, um, which I think is a key distinction to try and make there. Because if you take exogenous ketones, those ketones, firstly, they have not come from fat. Second, secondly, if you artificially elevate ketones, ketones themselves have an anti-lipolytic effect. So that means that they slow down fat release from fat tissue. So actually... Not a um, good thing if you're trying to lose weight, right? No, I mean, like, it's, it's, I think it's open to debate. I, I've seen people taking exogenous ketones whilst following a ketogenic diet and fasting. And I, I, my experience is that it doesn't complete... You know, there's a point where the exogenous ketones are starting to wear off and your own endogenous production like comes back online. So it's not going to, um, you know, it complements, it can be used to complement a ketogenic diet, but it certainly isn't, the taking the drink is not making you a fat burning machine. It's actually switching off your fat burning. And so you need to, um, if you're using ketogenic diet for weight loss, use exogenous ketones as a supplement around workouts or if you're having um, keto flu kind of symptoms, this could help alleviate that. Um, but if, you, if your aim is to use a ketogenic diet for weight loss, the, the drink does not do the same thing. Um, the, only, the only way that the drink could be useful for weight loss is, as um, you kind of alluded to at the start of the podcast, we've seen some effects on satiety, which is kind of interesting and, and 
um, potential implications for body composition, which is kind of interesting. But ketone drinks do not uh, put you in, they put you into ketosis, but not the fat burning kind of ketosis, not endogenous ketosis. For sure. It's a little, it's a little different. I think we as a community need to get together and agree on terms just so that everyone can be very clear about uh, what we mean when we say we're being, when we're in ketosis. And I think that role on satiety potentially is, is, is pretty profound in the sense that, you know, some of the fundamental principles of a successful weight loss plan is that people just aren't as hungry, which is obviously with all the hyperpalatable foods around us these days is a pretty big win. So could you talk a little bit about some of the other mechanisms by which, um, you know, it can support satiety or even, you know, some of the hunger hormones? Yeah. So it's really, really interesting story, kind of how this came about. So um, we had been studying the ketone ester drink in athletes and not really looking at it for weight loss at all. Um, and one thing that people would often come back to us saying, and one thing that I kind of experienced myself subjectively was, after you had one of these drinks, you just really weren't very hungry for the rest of the day, just not sort of um, as distracted by food as, as I would normally be. And so um, my supervisor, Kieran Clark, she was like, well, why don't you measure it? And so I spent um, three years, all of the studies that I ran, I um, gave people these paper questionnaires where they had to fill out um, on a line, you know, how hungry are you? How strong is your desire to eat? And how full are you? And um, I ended up measuring with a ruler, hand measuring with a ruler, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bit of paper. And it just didn't really sit. Oh, man, it was it was very, very laborious. And it didn't really seem to me like it was going to find anything because people weren't really paying that much attention when they filled these in. And also we had some like super hungry boys and some girls who could like take or leave breakfast, weren't very hungry. And the more variance you get in the data, the less likely you are to see a meaningful trend. So I was just doing all of this laborious measuring and just oh, didn't gosh. think I was gonna yeah I was like not gonna see anything and when it came to the end of my study I um pulled it all together and analyzed it and it was very very different and very divergent so people would have calories as ketones or calories as carbohydrates and they were less hungry similarly after both but then the longer after the drink uh, you got the more their like hunger scores diverge. So people who had ketone drinks just did not get that much more hungry compared with people who had uh, drinks that contain carbohydrate. They just, by the end of the four hour study, they were really hungry again. As well as people with ketones, they just weren't very hungry. And so that was um, the first time that we kind of actually got a quantitative measure on on there being a difference. And so I went back to all the blood samples that I'd collected and was looking for, for hunger hormones. And I decided I was going to look for ghrelin because um, people had run studies looking at patients following a ketogenic diet. And one of the hormones that was changed because of the diet was ghrelin. Um, and this kind of fits in with people, as you said, you know, people following the ketogenic diet often have more success because they feel more satiated on the diet. Um, and funnily enough, fat isn't particularly satiating protein is the most satiating nutrient so Absolutely. there's something yeah so there's something going on there that's more than just like the diet changing let's say and so i wondered i was like wonder whether ketones themselves are having an effect on on hormonal secretion and so we we measured um, ghrelin we also measured glp1 and pyy2 other gut hormones and we saw that um ghrelin anyway ghrelin is the classical hunger hormone and it was very strongly suppressed by having a ketone drink much much more strongly than having a carbohydrate drink and so we believe that's probably the key the key hormone anyway in, in to explain why ketones are more satiating um the other two hormones it was kind of uh, interesting they more signal 
fullness and satiety. So I'd have expected them to be perhaps higher with the ketone drink and they were not higher. So it doesn't look like ketone, it looks like ketones are making you less hungry rather than more full. But one really interesting point is that the um, satiety hormones, they um, inhibit the hunger areas of the brain. So if they, if rather than, even if they're not high, if they remain low, then that kind of area of the brain isn't going to be stimulated. It's sort of, there's like feedback loops going on. So I think there's still a little bit more to unpick with the hunger story, but we've got very um, exciting early evidence that's kind of um, corroborates the subjective experiences of people using the drink over the years. And I hope, um, so whilst we did not um, measure, say, ad libitum food intake, if I could redo the study, I'd have had like an all you can eat buffet at the end and measured if people actually just take weighed less, the food. Yeah. That's, you know, that's, yeah, exactly. That's 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 the answer to your question there. It's like, okay, so you feel less hungry and you've got less of this hormone in your blood, but like, do you actually eat less? That's the next question that really needs answering. And then, you know, okay, if you uh, have all of these things and you eat less, if you do it for, you know, a month or something like that, what's the net gonna result going to be in terms of weight loss? We, we don't know that yet, but as you say, controlling appetite is very, very uh, important part of success of weight loss attempts. So I'm optimistic, but kind of cautiously optimistic. I think um, we still have a little way to go. And also, I mean, uh, with the working with the ketone ester, it's, it's tremendously exciting how many things it's useful for. Uh, and I think it's great that it could be used for elite athletes. And I'm really excited about a lot of different um, therapeutic uses for, for ketones. And almost, almost the last thing I want is for it to be like, next best diet pill, <laughs> take this magic ketone drink, you know, control your appetite, just because I'm naturally a skeptic. And I, you know, I kind of think, uh, <laughs> people should take a holistic approach to weight loss just let's just say um and i don't think you know i Absolutely. think that it's only going to be useful if you can uh, reduce your calorie intake and also you know make other healthy lifestyle changes it's not it's not a panacea so i want to really carefully caveat that i think it's great i think it's very exciting i think it could work but um you can't just you can't just drink ketones and then yeah, always look at that ma donuts. magic bullet yeah that shiny new toy that's gonna fix yeah, everything for doesn't sure doesn't exist doesn't now, exist exactly now what about other clinical applications of ketone supplements potentially things like concussion mild tbi you know other other areas that you're excited about or that you see in the research as potential uh applications for ketone supplementation well i'm really glad you started with um, concussion and tbi that's like one of my favorites and that's one of the ones that i'm most hopeful that we can translate quickly because um because we are you know, marketing the human ketone drink for athletes, we we can hopefully get get it into athletes, get it being used by athletes. And concussion is a huge problem in a lot of, especially American sports like American football. There's you know, tons and tons of concussions. It's very, yeah, ice hockey, very very topical. Um, and so I'm optimistic that that might be something that we can translate and understand better soon, especially given the strength of the animal data there. And um, people have injected. Uh, ex exogenous ketones into animals and see not only a protective effect if they were to inject ketones before an injury, but also a, uh, a an effect that whereby ketones mitigate the damage caused by um, concussion if they're administered afterwards. People have also been experimenting by putting animals on a ketogenic diet and things like that as well, So and seen positive results there. So I'm really um, 
unfortunately, it's just not ethical to drop bricks on people's heads or yeah, run a concussion exactly, study. Yeah. And you, you know, like a controlled concussion Used to be, but not anymore, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you could get away with a lot ethically uh, back in the 50s. So, <laughs> yeah, if we, it's a shame we didn't have this technology back then. Maybe we'd have an answer. But um, I think, you know, if we could find a good, uh, like, military or soccer team, uh, football, sorry, team partner, then it's the sort of thing where you could use people's historical data and, like, really get a feel for if this is helping Um I'm, I'm optimistic about that. But then there's just a ton of other things I'm really interested in. I mean, we've seen that when you give ketone ester drinks to people, their blood sugar drops quite reliably. And it, the drop can actually be to a similar extent as to if someone was taking metformin. Um, so kind of interested to see wow. how it plays out with a with a diabetic population as well. I mean, they it's interesting for me, like it's a bit less clear cut because they've already got um, you know, obviously metabolic issues going on. So how ketones fit in on top of an already complicated metabolic picture is um is something I'm not totally Complex, sure about. Sure. But yeah, I'm but I'm interested to find out more about. Um then, you know, more downstream from that, you know, Alzheimer's disease, there's, you know, people call that diabetes of the brain. And I think it starts to get a bit different there because you're coming towards the end of life. And really what you're aiming to do is to maximize the quality of life for that person and for their carers. And so um, what we've seen when we we've actually got one published case study that uses this ketone ester. And uh, Dr. Mary Newport published this report. Um, she gave it to her husband who had Alzheimer's for six months, three drinks a day. And it really uh, noticeably alleviated many of his symptoms. He went from being able to not being able to not being able to do like um, simple tasks like dress himself, say, to being much more mobile. And he did like a, a cock face drawing task, for example, thing. And it was there was notable, noticeable differences. So I'm really optimistic um, for several neurodegenerative neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's or Parkinson's as well, that there could be an impact. And finally, I guess, um, cancer. I mean, Dom D'Agostino's group is doing great work um, with tumor models. Uh, he's working with a researcher called Angela Poff, and she published some research that showed um, supplementing with ketones decreased tumor metastasis um, and actually shrunk tumors. And so, again, again, you know, really want to carefully caveat this and say it's like not going to replace um, drugs wholly. But uh, Professor D'Agostino, he works with uh, a guy called Thomas Seafried and they, they're pioneering approach where with hyperbaric oxygen therapy uh, as well as fasting or nutritional ketosis. And so what the aim to, is there is to stress put a stress on the body that the cancer cells can't deal with that other cells in the body can deal with because cancer cells often accumulate mutations in their mitochondria that means that they become very reliant on glycolysis and anaerobic energy production so if you put people in hyperbaric oxygen and then put, put them maybe on a ketogenic diet or give them exogenous ketones that slow down uh, glycolysis inside the body you could help to metabolically um compromise those cells make them more sensitive to to any drugs that you're giving them so this is all very very preliminary but it's um, very exciting yeah it's exciting i can see now with ketone esters being commercially available and convenient um much more convenient than iv salt infusions and much more widely applicable than say being on the ketogenic diet because not very many people can do it successfully and achieve a high enough level um i can see this being you know a very interesting area uh, in terms of medical and, and also sports science research in the next five to ten years. I just hope, I guess one thing that I really want to 
help steward against is you know like the hype cycle where something kind of comes Definitely, around yep. and there's all this hype all this big for three or four years and then yeah and then a big trough and so i think you know there is probably like three to five to ten things you know i don't know how many things the ketone ester is going to be amazingly game-changing for but i'm confident that there'll be like some things where it's going to really, really change people's quality of life or change people's athletic. You know, there's going to be some specific use cases applications that, for sure. Exactly, that are, are just bang on, and it's going to be transformative. And you know, in a way, I I hope very much that it's like Alzheimer's disease or cancer or you know, some something where it's going to really make a positive impact in the world because that would be very, very rewarding and exciting. But if it's not those things, if it's you know, uh, there's a certain amount of um, inherited metabolic disorders where i think this could be really really useful i mean it would just be great to to help people with this so i hope that um people continue to explore different applications and don't just get disillusioned if it doesn't work for one thing or another but i'm really optimistic i think there's plenty of things it's going to work for phenomenal well, brianna i mean so many great insights here on the use of ketones and not only endurance athletes satiety but all these other potential applications that you mentioned. Um, so I want to respect your time. Last question for you here, you, and we're going to shift over to the personal side of things. Can, okay. you, can you give us a little insight into how you start your day? You're obviously very busy. Do you have a morning routine? Are you a coffee person, training in the a.m.? What, what does that look like? Oh, I'm definitely a training in the morning kind of person. Um, I, I find it quite easy to wake up in the morning. I don't tend to drink coffee before I go and work out. I um, try and build in some like meditation, mindfulness practice into my day. Normally I'm using an app um, that does guided 10 minutes guided meditation. So I try and start off my day with that. Um, I like drinking. Like, a Which app is that that you're using? Head, Headspace. Okay, I don't know whether it's a Briti- British. Yeah, yeah, um, no, that's right. yeah I use Headspace um, and then tend to get a, bit, get a bit of hydration in before I go and work out. I'm a big fan of green tea. Uh, and if it's not a hot drink that like green tea, then it's normally just like some good good old water. Uh, and I, I, I here in California, I'm big into cycling uh, and running. The other day, I got up at uh, 4:45 and cycled two hours up a mountain to watch the sunrise. So it's the kind of crazy stuff that I like to do before work. Um, awesome, that's but, fantastic. Yeah, it's as, it's as much as I can cram in before I start work in the morning. I, I don't tend to. Sometimes I get out quite late, so I don't really. Um, uh, plan to work out in the evening. By the by, then I'm normally kind of tired. So um, yeah, but I normally normally do something active every day, and it's um, gets me mentally and physically prepared for for what's to come. So I'd recommend it. Get it. Get outside. Get the natural light. Fantastic. Well, great advice and, and great insights. So where can people stay connected with you and keep up with all your phenomenal work and research? So I am big on Twitter. I tend to share anything that's coming out of our group on, um, on Twitter. Uh, you can find me at Brianna Stubbs. I don't think there's a one or anything else like that afterwards, but we can check afterwards. Um, if people want to follow my crazy training, I'm on Strava. Um, always always posting on there. It kind of gets to be a bit of an addiction. You know, one of those people where it's like, if I fall off my bike, make sure you turn off my Strava. So um, <laughs> big, big, big on Strava. And then also you can follow uh, Human. That's H-V-M-N. Uh, on Twitter or on Facebook. And so you can keep up to date with the company and what, what the company's doing as well. Fantastic. Well, we'll definitely include all those links uh, with the podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Brianna, thanks again for taking the time to come on. You definitely have the best last name of any guest we've had on so far. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Thanks again for we everyone need, else. We, we need to title this podcast, Dr. Bubs interviews Dr. Stubbs. Yeah, Stubbs and Bubs, there you go. <laughs> uh, and thanks again for everyone else tuning in. If you guys have any questions or want to leave a comment for Brianna on today's episode, we'd love to hear from you as well on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. And of course, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share with friends. Awesome, guys. Thanks again and see you all next week. The Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcasts.